0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi listeners, this is DataCast, where I hold long-term in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journey of the career. My guest today is DeBaris Brown, the CEO and co-founder at Meroxa a venture capital-backed company enabling teams of any size and level of expertise to build real-time data pipelines in minutes, not months. Prior to finding Maroxa, the Devaris was the product leader at Twitter, Heroku, VSCO, and Zendesk. When he's not sitting in front of a computer, you can find the virus behind a camera, capturing moments in time, at the stove, whipping up the finest delicacies or behind a set of turntables, moving a sea of people through music. So Devaris is really my pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Yeah. Likewise. Thank you for having me.
1: Fabulous. You know, by way of introduction, I believe that you grew up in the South Side of Chicago, and you went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign to study mathematics and computer science in the early 2000s. Can you briefly share a bit about your upbringing, as well as your interest in math and CS growing up, and your overall college experience?
2: Yeah, definitely. So my mom worked at a, a software consultancy during the first dot-com boom, and <laughs> Uh, while I was there, I saw all of these, you know, college age kids driving fancy cars and, you know, doing a lot of the things that I only imagined. I would ask them like, Hey, how did you get to this point? And and they always told me, Hey, I've just learned how to code and I'm you know, this is what it is, right? Like dropped out of school to go make six figures and I'm like, Man, as a fourteen year old, six figures in the nineties was like a million dollars, right? And so you know, my mom, they used to give out book allowances every month. It was like 150 bucks. And she would give me 50 bucks of that so I can go buy a book and teach myself how to code. And uh, eventually I learned how to develop in C and classic ASP and ATL com and like all that type of stuff. And so I, I learned how to do QA and learned how to be a developer and worked on some cool stuff with that company. And yeah I mean from there it was just kind of like off to the races like I I was just so enthralled by the field of software development because it was always changing so I've done stuff from you know being the IT guy to being a systems engineer to being a database engineer I worked on the human genome project in school you know helped build one of the world's fastest clusters at the time super clusters you know because I just had experience and College for me was a great stepping stone because I had, you know, the part of the reason why I went to University of Illinois was so I can participate in world class research. Uh, I was definitely blessed and fortunate to be able to be an undergrad to do so because nothing like that had ever been ha- that had happened before. But I got to work on things like the LLVM, as I mentioned, the human. Genome project, you know, stuff for operating systems, distributed system security. I mean, it was just like an intellectual thought exercise for me. So I just love being around super smart people that were thinking about the future of computing. And to me, that was the best part of college. I was fortunate to be able to do a lot of great projects because I had practical experience. The big thing was there were a lot of people that were interested in computer science, but none of them had actually like done theory and then apply to theory, and so that's what made me very valuable. Is honestly one of the things that I thank my mom for was before I even got to college. She told me to make a list of all of the professors and uh, research projects I thought were interesting, and I just sent them my resume. It was like, hey. You know, I got accepted to University of Illinois. I'm coming in. You know, here's what I've been able to do. Would love to work on you know this project with you because of whatever reason, right? Like it was interesting. And fortunately for me, every one of them got back, right? Like they're like, yo, we would love to work with you on some of these projects because I could, you know, take the theory. And then basically, you know, in the email that I said, it was like, yo, I think it'd be dope if we did X, Y, Z with this, you know, whatever this thing was. And so like one of them was this project called Gaia OS. And I say, yo, it'd be dope if we can run a house off of this, right? Like it was a distributed operating system that basically like took inputs from sensors and all types of stuff. And I was just like, yo, it'd be dope if we can do that. And like, that was one of the projects I ended up working on first, Right. Another one was like the security thing. I helped build as an undergrad, built the security curriculum and we got certified by the NSA as like one of the cybersecurity centers of excellence, right? And I'm a freshman, you know, and just because I had done, you know, some little hacking and stuff like that in the past, it really like, it was even more so than what some of the researchers had done at the school. So for me, it was just kind of like that intellectual curiosity, of always just learning how to do things. And then on the side, like I was making websites for every single student organization, right? That's how I was paying my bills, right? It was like, you know, charging people to build, uh, you know, was it WordPress? No, I don't think it was, we didn't even have CMSs at the time. I, I think I built my own first, and then I was just basically charging people to like get on my CMS, right? And I mean, I was just always hustling, always just trying to figure out a way and then scratching my intellectual curiosity. So that's uh, that was college for me.
1: Yeah, thanks for providing the details and context of like how you get interested in programming and a little bit about some of the, you know, research experience that you collect to undergrad. I was kind of curious, so like it sounds like you learn to program learn to code websites probably like in high school even before go to college and this is probably like in the late 90s right which is like the very early days of internet like what are some of the resources that you use to pick up this skill set
2: yeah i was even back then i think o'reilly or had books and things i was just a huge book person Mm -hmm. i would basically get a book go through it and then yeah just go through it again try to do a project go through it again all right like it was just trial and error i mean i spent you know they used to have those computer conventions and, and I would go there and I would basically like, you know, buy my own servers and buy my own computer parts. I've been putting together computers since probably 96, 97. For me, I just loved it, right? Like I was that person that, you know, I was the first person on my block with the internet. I was the first person on my block with a CD burner, right? So, you know, I was doing some things, you know? <laughs> You know, uh, so it was just always just, again, just being curious. And then once I got to school, and this is the funny thing, right? Like I was racking my, I was wiring my own ethernet cables. I was doing all this stuff. So it was funny when we got to NCSA, which is one of the jobs that I had. And they were like, oh, we need to build this super cluster. I was the one putting together the big fat mirror net cables and things and racking them to think Like I knew how to do all of this stuff just based off of me hacking, you know, the stuff around at, at home, so it was just one of those things, man, where other kids are going out and buying Jordans and clothes and all that type of stuff, and I, and I did too, for me, it was just like, yo, I gotta go get this new processor, I need to go, you know, put this in my machine, I need to, you know, I remember at one point, we ended up getting DSL at my house, and I mean, that just changed my entire life, uh, AT&T came in, and like, we were one of the first, so they came in and And brought uh, a line to our house because my mom needed it for her job. And so that was, I mean, it was just like, hey, we, you know, I was getting all the benefits from her doing all that stuff. So, yeah, it was great, man. I mean, I just think that when I look back on it, and it's funny, I've like never answered this question before. But when I look back at it, I was just super fortunate to have somebody in the house that was at a tech company I mean, my mom does QA stuff and she doesn't an know to code, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it was just kind of like I had access to a bunch of people around her that could teach me whenever I got into a spot where I just didn't know things, right? And that was super, super, super beneficial.
1: Yeah, I see. Yeah. So let that exposure to the people who in that community allows you to pick up the trip and absorb that mindset, you know, during your college year. And yeah, so you mentioned, you know, obviously you did a lot of hustle a lot, you know, during college, working multiple jobs, you know, working in research. Based on my research, you also complete two separate software engineering internship with Intel and Cisco system. What of yep. the valuable lesson that you learned from those internships?
2: Yeah, I would say Cisco, not as much, you know, what I've, well, actually, you know, let me take that back. I learned at Cisco that there's two approaches to software development. There's innovation and then there's acquiring innovation by acquisition all right um cisco was the latter and so i learned and it's interesting because you know when i go to went to salesforce and some of these other places later like that's how they would innovate as well so that was just one of those like case study you know MBA things that hey at a certain point you just can't go build more product you actually have to go acquire something right and now as a founder ceo that's just one of those little nuggets I got in my back pocket, right? The other nugget that I learned there too is is that culture is extremely important. So when you're acquiring all of these companies and things like that, it takes a long time to assimilate them into the culture, right? Of the acquiree, right? And so, or the acquire. And that, it was something that was very, very, very apparent for me because there'd be all types of infighting and battles and you know like all that type of stuff. And the other thing too I learned is... Not all the companies that make billions of dollars are going to be sexy, right? Cisco, you know, nobody is... I shouldn't say nobody, but if you ask any college grad companies that they would love to go work for, I'm pretty sure Cisco's not at the top of that, right? (laughs) Like, like, you know, they're thinking about all of that, but Cisco just finds a way. You know, they hire 1,000 to 1,500 interns a year, you know, they do all these things and it's like... That consistency of message and that experience around interning, even them making so much money every quarter, like understanding what the power of building a distribution channel—that's something I learned there. Mm -hmm. Other than that, you know, it's kind of a blip on my radar. So, you know, whatever. The thing I learned at Intel, though, it's so funny because they're processor, you know, chip manufacturer, right? And I worked on the server side. But we were building brand new factories uh, all the time. And so my job was to build all these factories and places. So it gave me, a, a, you know, kind of the skill set to understand supply chain at a global scale. <laughs> so much to the point where, you know, as because I also invest, right? Like, you know, when I when I talk to people that are dealing with supply chains and things like that, like one of the big things for me was triple sourcing. Right. If I talk to a company that's only got one factory, you know, in a place that for for their supplies and you know, like all that type of stuff. Right. Like I know that they're not going to be successful or they're going to run into some issues because this is what I saw when I was at Intel. It, it, the other thing I saw, too, was the importance of understanding the local you know, kind of rules and regulations. Right. So we built a factory a plant in Cavite in the Philippines and Costa Rica and you know for me being able as a young kid being able to go to those places and actually just kind of talk to people and understand hey this is what the impact of what this plant is going to do for you this this fab is going to do for you it just really made me understand I need to learn the local language of people learn the local customs and then always whatever I do try to make sure that You know, whenever you go into somebody's house, you just don't kick your feet up and and relax, right? Like, you ask permission, all right? And that was a really, really, really big thing because it's like, yeah, we're here. We've talked to the government and and things like that. But we didn't actually talk to the people and understand what what they needed. So those are really, really big lessons that I've learned. Also, Intel, like, the power of process, right? Like, you got to think, at the time, Intel was operating all these fabs. And on a chip, you might get, you know, basically, they shoot it's like a lithograph right like you do some photoelectric stuff right to make a chip right but only like 30 to 40 percent yield that you would get on this wafer right could actually be used in products. so for me it was really just understanding that you can have, have the most perfect process in the world that you think of but you can't really control the outcomes and so for me that taught me patience right worry about the process worry about how to get things done optimize that but you can't really control the outcomes of that i think at the time they had less than 20 chips that have been perfect in their history when they do the photoelectric stamping and all of that on a wafer unless they've done billions and billions and billions of processors but only 20 less than 20 wafers that came out 100 percent yield right like that's crazy so for me it just taught me the importance of process and worrying about the outcomes
0: yeah,
1: for sure. So Cisco is the bottom culture and then, you know, understanding about acquisition and merging of software. And then also the company that makes billion dollars, that doesn't have to be sexy, right? Right. It can be very mundane stuff. And then in Intel, you mentioned a few things, which is be patient, focusing on the process over the outcome, learning a lot about supply chain optimization, and then learning about the local communities where your software is going to make an impact. Yeah, so exactly. I think those are definitely a lot of learning and lesson that you are quite as an undergrad and you know as you sort of navigate into the world technology
2: yep yep yeah i mean that's really you know as an adult right now that i look back i'm like you know what even though i might not have had the best experience at some of these places at the end of the day there were lessons and now that i'm in a position to run my own business i can pull from all of those experiences right so anybody that's listening you know there's always lessons in the down times and you just have to be mature enough to do a retrospective and try to pull those things out because it can be valuable.
1: Absolutely. I try to make the best out of any possible experience. So you graduated from UIC in the summer of 2006, I believe. And then after that, you spent about five years working at Microsoft. First yep. as a system engineer and then as an academic developer evangelist. What was some of your proudest accomplishment at Microsoft?
2: Yeah, oh, man. So some of the most proudest things I did were basically automating a ton of infrastructure when I was in in Global Foundation Services. So think of us as like a centralized compute platform. And we were basically separate data centers. And I remember like my first month there, there was an underwater earthquake going from the US over to Asia and the cable got severed. So literally all of Microsoft's online services were not available in Asia. Right, says so hotmail, that was Windows Live, that was a bunch of stuff, right? And so, you know, basically we got brought in to figure out, hey, how do we make instead of having a little data center that was on the fault line in Santa Clara, I'm not making this up, right? Like <laughs> that's where if you use hotmail in the nineties, that's where it was at, right? Or nineties and early two thousands. So how do we make this a global, you know, geo distributed, replicated platform? for everybody at Microsoft to, to build off of. And so that's where Bing came from. That's where Windows Azure came from. There was a lot of this stuff that foundationally I was a part of as an engineer, trying to help build the next generation of data centers. My job was essentially, how do we automate this so that way we don't have to have a huge army? So we had you know, hundreds of thousands of machines around the world and like two people per data center. You know, and that was based off of the automation framework that, you know, stuff that I had done there. So for me, that was super cool because I got to see, you know, essentially a lot of the work that I had done in the past starting to get built and doing things around the world. I think the other thing, you know, and that was from the system engineer, like, you know, it's funny, like we have all these titles. I don't know if it would have been SRE or a platform engineer or whatever, but Basically, just building infrastructure and building platforms that people can develop on top of it. You know, mm-hmm. As an academic developer evangelist, it's funny because I was, what, 22, 23 years old when I was uh, first at Microsoft, well, in my early 20s. And I just burnt out. And I was just like, yo, I got to get a job closer to Chicago. And I think for me, the academic developer evangelist job was dope because I had done a ton of research already. And so for me, my job was to go around to all these, you know, pretty cool universities that I already had relationships with and just teach them how to use Microsoft technology with their research or their projects or Mm -hmm. in their school club. So I used to go out and do like pizza parties or hackathons and things like that with the students at night. But then like, you know, give away Xboxes and all that type of stuff. But then during the day, I would be, you know, working with, Some of the best world class researchers on all types of crazy stuff. Uh, And so two things that I was super proud of there. One was I worked with uh, historically black colleges and universities to get them to up level their research and, you know, what they were offering their students. So Before I got there, it had been some years, I think it's like four or five years before they hired an intern from historically black college and universities. But when I got there, I had like an intentional program, went around and, you know, basically trained them up to get internships. And then like literally the next year, we had 22, right? And so for me, it was just like one of those things where even a lot to this day, a lot of those people that were in the initial class and the cohort of people that I interacted with, They're out here in the Bay working at startups and things like that. And they always tell me how, you know, just me pouring into them and giving them the resources and attention literally changed the course of their lives, right? And, like, that was something that made me extremely proud from that. One of the other things that we had done, too, was, like, I spoke at, I think, maybe the first South by Southwest on stuff. and, And it was basically around... I was working with Ohio State University at the time, you know, we had just, Microsoft had just put out XNA, which was our gaming framework, and with XNA, you can like target, you know, the Zoom, you can put stuff on the web, you can do stuff for Xbox, and so, you know, now people are talking about universal apps and things like that, but that was something I was doing in 2008, right, and like, there's a lot of things that we had did back then that was kind of run and gun, but you know, now they're basically like industry standard best practices. And then those are things that, you know, being able to create impact for for people that look like me and my culture, being able to do some forward thinking things, All right, Those are the most things I was proud about, you know, in my early career.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing all those details. As an engineer, you, the automation framework within platforms to improve the productivity of the engineer and then NASA evangelists who spread out opportunities to historically back college and then be at the forefront of technologies. So I think, I feel like, you know, all these things that you just mentioned are very applicable to the data war at the moment, which is yep. like a lot about platforms and evangelism as well. So I felt like yep. some of that experience that you have in your career applicable to what we are going through right
2: now. Yeah. yeah I mean, for me, I, if I can get, you know, 500,000 people to use Silverlight, you know, it was like, I can get People to use my thing, you know, and it's just one of those. The big thing is I tell people with your early career, don't pigeonhole yourself. Use that to explore, figure out what you like and what you don't like, you know, and then use that to build a brand and expertise. And then once you figure out like, hey, this is what I'm really, really good at, then that helps you narrow in on the opportunities that you can go after. So I've been very, very, very fortunate to have a wide array of experiences that like now that I'm writing my own thing, it's like, oh, yeah, I've done this before. I can, you know, and I've done it at scale, right? And it's just helped me you know, kind of get past a lot of the initial barriers.
1: Oh, perfect. It's really, you sort of mentioned the gaming thing towards the end because that sounds like one of the industries that's who you in afterwards. Based on my research after Microsoft, you spent some time working in both gaming and entertainment space. Yeah. So as a chip developer evangelist at a startup called Marmalade. And later on, at the chief product officer, another company called ClickPush. You know, how was your overall experience working at these two startups, especially given your previous team mostly working at like very large tech companies? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, Marmalade was interesting because uh, it was right at the advent of, you know, mobile gaming, right? And so for me, having a gaming platform that allowed folks to, you know, kind of write your code and a single language and then, you know, deploy it to multiple targets, it was basically the holy grail, right? And so for us, and again, pulling back from my early experiences, you know, that whole kind of write once and deploy to many things, that's kind of what, what I did with the LLVM stuff, right? And it's like, at the end of the day, the thing that helped me with Marmalade was I took all the learnings that I had from Microsoft and I built a developer community around the world from scratch. I mean, when I say I was living in London, going over to Japan and South Korea, right? And in Dubai, like all the places where mobile in East Africa, like Kenya and, you know, those types of places where mobile penetration was extremely hot. Like over 80, 90% of the population had a mobile phone at the time. And this was 2010, 2011, right? And so, you know, for me, it was crazy to be on the forefront of those things. Because I had done stuff in the U.S. for Microsoft as an evangelist, but I had never done anything around the globe, right, as an evangelist. You know, I might speak here and there, but, you know, this gave me, Marmalade gave me the ability to build something from scratch, right? And that was something that I needed. I need to learn how to do it. Without the Microsoft marketing machine, how can we do it? By and large, you're pretty successful. Uh, I ended up getting acquired by a Japanese telecom company, but you know, at the end of the day, for me, it was one of those things where, you know, learning how to do business globally was the best thing I learned from Marmalade. When I got to click push, it was a little bit of a different story. So, I mean, I'm a DJ, you know, was in the music industry for years and I had this pain of, you know, it was funny because we were having the same conversation around streaming and Spotify and all that back then. And it was kind of like, yeah, streaming's killing folks how do we make it better how do we get more revenue for the artists so click push was a company i co-founded with two other folks mm-hmm. and you know that was really what our mandate was, it was like how do we get people to, to listen to music for free you know giving them another revenue stream without having to worry about like the economics of streaming because they were just terrible i mean they still are but even back then they were terrible And, yeah, we figured it out. Like, we figured out something. I'll tell you one of the funny stories that I had was, one of the insights that I had was, look, every time an artist releases an album, they essentially give you two promo songs or whatever, like the single that you might hear on the radio or something like that. They also have a different royalty structure than Mm -hmm. back catalog and all this other stuff. And so for me, what we ended up doing, instead of like paying for, the big giant catalog, I was like, yo, give me the bat catalog and the radio singles and promo stuff, right? So that way we weren't paying astronomical fees as a starter for just access to music. And they were so cheap. But the cool thing is, is like if we're targeting games and things like that, a lot of times it's not the new singles that make make great you know, music for games. It's the back catalog stuff. So we have worked with this, ClickPus, was just basically like an advertising thing for music and we targeted games at first. And one of the cool things was is like, you know, we worked with the mafia game, right? And now all that like Frank Sinatra, Rat Pack, you know, kind of old school music, you know, it works better than whatever the new Fingles stuff is, right? Like nobody's, you know, looking at the Sopranos or Goodfellas and like wondering, Man, I want to hear future or Kendrick Lamar on this mafia song, right? Like, no, they want Dean Martin, they want Frank Sinatra, they want Perry Como, they want, you know, all those folks. And so We used some Dean Martin stuff, and I remember getting a letter from the Dean Martin Society like, yo, our royalties went up like a ton. Thank you so much. We were able to, you know, provide scholarships and like all this other stuff just based off of us taking some back catalog stuff and just, you know, kind of stuffing and marrying it with the game, like a Mafia game. So... You know, that was kind of cool stuff, man. Like, you know, just that company ended up getting acquired too. So, um, you know, I was two for two at that point. And, and, you know, for me, it was just kind of like building that success story. But if you notice the thread and, you know, as we kind of go through my career, the thread is for me to help developers, you know, get more revenue, be more productive, and then be these on ramps to platforms. All right. And that's really the thread that I started to see in my career at that point was always Mm-hmm. Let me help the people that are making the thing, not just consuming the thing.
1: Yeah, like the creators, right? Like yep, they're, they're helping them compensate for their creation, you know, fair and but make them more sustainable, right? keep, yep. keep creating. And yeah, I really like your earlier part about your experience in Mamlet, how you travel the world, and almost like have that global perspective in business. And this is actually related to these two experiment and you also mentioned earlier about Cisco, like how do you learn about acquisition? So both of these companies got acquired. Maybe can you just provide a brief lesson learned from acquisition process? Like you know, what startup acquisition looks like? Like what do you learn yeah. to be acquired?
2: Yeah, I mean I think um the biggest lesson I learned was always create your own leverage. Right. Never come into a negotiation without leverage (laughs) like if you get acquired make sure you got two or three other people on the hook Mm -hmm. because if not they will drag it out and basically try to uh, reduce the price because they know that like you need the money or all this other stuff right and so they're not incentivized to move and you know if you expect them to do things honorably and on your timeline that's never gonna happen So, you know, the advice that I would say is if you get one acquisition offer, find at least two or three other people, because at the same time, like that way you can start creating your own leverage. Can't say much more because of, you know, legalities and things, but that is something that I would wholeheartedly recommend to folks. It's just whenever you get across the negotiation table with anybody for anything, make sure that you have leverage. Yeah.
1: Leverage, optionality, like negotiate fairly. Yep. You know, after the acquisition of ClickPush, you uh, spent the next two years as a platform product manager at Zendesk, yep. where you drove the adoption of the Zendesk Developer Platform for developers to create unique customer experience. And this is around 2012, 2014, and Zendesk eventually become very popular later on. So I'm sure you have a lot of influence on how the adoption of the product become. First of all, would you mind unpacking how the Zendesk Developer Platform works? And then, furthermore, what are some of the unique data engineering challenges building it?
2: Oh man. So it was actually kind of funny. I had met the CTO of Zendesk. He heard me speak at a conference and he was like, You know, we're thinking about building a developer platform and we don't really know what it's going to be, but we just think that you would be the person to help us get it going. And so, what's interesting is they had an API that they were using, it was a Rails based API. And I don't think it was published at the time. Uh, it was undocumented, but people were basically like hacking around the Zendesk API, like, you know, going in Chrome tools, figuring out, you know, what endpoints are doing what and basically kind of hacking around the API. And so the usage got big enough that it was basically causing a denial of service at some points because people were just doing all types of crazy things like Groupon and some other folks. And so interestingly what I did was when I got there, I said, okay, well, I don't know what people are using and how they're using it, but I'm gonna go find out. And so we dumped all of the, the API logs into Hadoop and we you know, we ran all these queries, these aggregation queries, to figure out like, hey, you know, via the logs, what were the most popular endpoints that people were hitting? And that's how I basically, like, running that, doing that analysis and looking at it helped me figure out what endpoints to offer first. You talk about data-driven development, like, that was it. I mean, like, you know, I, I didn't know what Hadoop was. I didn't know any of that stuff. But that was really the first time that I saw the power of what data can do for an organization. Mm-hmm. And so once we put up the API documentation, I remember basically writing all of that stuff and, you know doing the docs, building the website, you know, all of that. I mean, it just took off like wildfire. I mean, it really turned us from a customer service product to a customer service platform. Mm -hmm. You also have to realize, like, at the time of Zendesk was really the kind of the golden era for startups in our generation. I was working with Uber, Twitter, Twilio, Airbnb, Groupon, all types of companies helping them build these customer service applications that were on top of our API, our newly developed API. And it was crazy to see because of all of the different types of use cases and how people were using our API, but it really, really, really enforced. The couple of things I learned there were the empowered data, right? Like just understanding how to use data to understand what customers are doing and really custom it's funny because i was at a customer service platform but really the value of customer service just being proactive about answering tickets being proactive about participating in forums in the community and things like that doing outreach to your customers and just saying like yo i see you're doing this like can you give me a little bit more insight and allowing them to talk to you about how they're leveraging your platform that was just something that i mean it was it was cool and again i got to build up a developer community from scratch right and you know it was just one of those things where it was a global thing and i really think that at the end of the day Zendes taught me how to build community and that was something that i can build platforms and things like that but really leveraging the power of a community to find those people who are most emotionally invested in your success because it's their success as well, right? And and for me, that was, you know, the lesson I've taken across all, you know, everything I've done as a product manager. For me, that was something that was the biggest lesson I learned. The other, like, little small things, too, the power of self-service. So, people didn't realize, like, at the time, to sign up for an enterprise product, you have to go talk to a salesperson, you know, it'd be a couple weeks, a couple months, before you actually get anything done. Zendesk pioneered self-service, where you just sign up with an email address and credit card, and you're off to the races. And now that I'm doing this, you know, for Maroxa, a big part of it was being self-service, right. The other thing I learned, too, was design as a differentiator, right? Like being designed first and thinking about the UX and positioning so that people can be immediately productive, I think that that's something that Zendesk was pushing more so than anybody, right? Their whole thing was their tagline was beautifully simple. But if you looked at the Zendesk dashboard in juxtaposition and comparison with all of the other enterprise software at the time, it was like night and day. You know, we really, you know, if you think about uh, old world, you know, kind of Microsoft-driven GUIs that had a bunch of menu options and, I don't know, it was just terrible-looking software. Yeah. Zendesk really embraced the consumerization of IT trend at the time where everything was just beautiful colors. It wasn't blue. You know, it wasn't just like weird gray. Like, we were green. And, you know, instead of having words all over the places, we use iconography, right, to communicate things. And, you know, we ushered in, you know, I think we were one of the largest or most popular single page apps at the time where it felt like a native experience in the browser, right? Like all these types of things that we pioneered at the time from the experience aspect are now commonplace today. And and it was all, you know, design and UX driven. And so that was, you know, being self-service and, and designing and UX driven. Those are the things that, you know, kind of minor things that I've learned. And I've, again, put in my tool belt so that whenever I go do a thing, it's always at the forefront.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: learning a lot about the power of data, important um, customer services, learning how to build a community from scratch, designing a product for self-serve and making the product beautiful, with really great UI as part of the customization of IT. So those are the key things that Zanis has taught you. I want to double click on your point about building a community. And you said like Senator really taught you how to build a community. You know, these days, there's a lot of talk around community leg growth, for instance, as a new mode to differentiate a startup better from the other. Like, Reflecting on your time back then, you know, what are some of the, like, the biggest challenges of being a technical community as part of a startup initiative?
2: Yeah, the biggest challenge is when you're starting is, you know, figuring out how to provide immediate utility, right? And cutting through the noise. And so what are you offering as a community that's going to be different than everybody else? Right? Like today, everybody's so cookie cutter. It's a Discord channel, you know, and maybe a user conference that's pretty much it, right? Like that's what community is today. And so you really have to figure out. So you think about you going to a startup, they're probably using anywhere between 10 and 15 different vendors. All of them have their own communities. What are you going to offer that's different and compelling for people to participate? Like you have to start thinking about that from the beginning and really diving into the ethos as to why and how somebody can engage in your community. And that's really what the challenge is because you're Competing for mind share amongst everybody else. And so you really have to be self aware and dive deep as into what makes you go, what is the success metric or criteria that you're trying to tease out from the community? And then like be very, very intentional about creating programs and entry points of participation that people can have. So that's really the challenges, like I always say, everybody, you know, it's easy to throw a party or advertise a party, but you got to get people to come and stick around and have a beer, right? Or, you know, whatever non-alcoholic equivalent it is. But like, you know, that's the thing. And really, really, really understanding what you what value that you can provide is paramount to the community. Also, too, providing a safe space for contributions and things for all different levels, right? Like not everybody's going to be the superpower user that understands everything in your product. So you got to figure out how to like engage people as to where they're at and have offerings for them and even you know kind of build sub-communities for them to engage as well. So that self-awareness is always the challenge because everybody thinks if I build it, they'll come. But you really have to be proactive about engaging the community and figuring out why they want to engage with you versus the myriad of other communities that they can interact with.
1: Yeah, I see. It's just really about that retention piece. When you get people in your circle, how do you engage them at relevant levels of commitment, right? Yeah. Stepping back from that and, you know, go back to your career, you spent about two years as Endless, and then you worked for a year as the lead product manager at VSCO, which is a startup that use digital tools for the modern creative. And I believe that the main product is a mobile application. So you're kind of stepping back into the mobile world and the entertainment world again. Yeah, what were some of the projects that you contributed to during your time there?
2: Ah oh, man, Visco was great. So the reason why I went there was everything I had done up to this point had been developer platform, right? I wanted to figure out if I can go be a consumer PM just because. And I remember the advice I had given, right? It's like experiment to figure out what you like and what you don't like, you know? And so for me, that was really the reason why I went to Visco. Also, you know, in my intro, you mentioned I'm a photographer. I was a huge Visco user. And for me, it was just like, I get to marry my day job with my passion. it was something that was extremely attractive. Funny enough, Visco was a Zendesk user. I was in a conference in Atlanta and I was talking about using a Zendesk conference. And there, I think the head of customer success service was like, hey, you know, we're trying to build out all this stuff and we had this in-depth conversation. And then I believe that next morning they had raised... I think it was like 40 million or something like that. I mean, it was something crazy, right? And so I was like, oh shit, let me go talk to them and see what the opportunities are. And they were like, you know what? Honestly, we're about to, we need some product management. I'm like, yo, this is perfect. And then the CTO had went to my undergrad. So it was just like, yo, there was a lot of like reasons why I went there. And so for me, I think Visco was the challenge that I needed to understand what I don't want to do. All right. When I got there, we were in the midst of trying to figure out what the new version of Visco was going to be. So, you know, they were they had had some contractors and, you know, they were building the app and all. This. So they had just used that the money that they had just raised to go build out these teams. So. For me, it was just really installing a product-driven culture there to help do that. And, you know, we did some dope stuff. Like, we won App of the Year when we got it released and all this type of stuff, man. Like, it was really, really, really cool to see. And so, the thing that I realized then was how to do growth and be a growth PM, right? Looking at the data, understanding who's using it. So, first of all, I had to go build a data platform because they didn't have one. So, I did that from scratch. The first one, we were using Localytics. And Localytics was, the analytics part was dope. But like, the, you know, once we get the analysis and, you know, we were supposed to put in like their marketing automation tools and stuff like that, that was terrible. And so basically I ended up coming in and trying to replace that. But the lesson that I learned then was don't be so solution driven. As a product manager, my job is not to come with all the answers. My job is to ask the right questions. And I didn't ask the right questions. So that project failed, to be honest what I should have done was ask like every when I got there, everybody was like, Oh, local analytics is terrible. I should have asked like, well, why do you think it's terrible? Because the thing that I moved it to was terrible for the analytics, but it was great for the actual, like, you know, messaging and marketing automation built off of those analytics. Right. And so that was really the thing where the lesson that I learned then, once we got the data platform in a decent direction, it was my job to basically go figure out growth. Right. And so, I started to see all these people around the world using Visco, and I just started building communities of photographers based off of all those things, you know kind of the data that we had saw and uh, I remember I saw like you know China was huge right and and they were using us. You know, hacked versions of Visco because, you know, hey, one of the things I learned when I was doing Marmalade over in China was that like, yo, them hacking your thing and putting it up for free was like a sign of success. Right. And we just had to embrace that. And so while I was freaking out like, oh, man, we got all these unofficial versions of Visco floating around. I was like, no, let's do something better, which was I localized the app in uh, simplified Chinese, which, again, was something I got from the gaming world right? So I looked at all of the data, figured out where all of the top users were from a language perspective, right? Because every API request, we would ask for a language header. So I basically built this graph of like the top 10 places and languages that we use, got the app simplified into, you know, localized into all those top 10 different languages, and then released specific apps or versions in those languages. All right. When I tell you, when we did that for China, we literally dosed ourselves in the first weekend. Like, So many people had used us. We had no clue how to deal with all the traffic. But again, it's just all of those experiences that I used and I started building on top of, I mean, it was just one of those things again where I saw the power of data and what it can do to unlock growth and to unlock these deeper connections with customers. And I think that that's something that you know, will stay with me for the rest of my life. But also, too, I realized at that point, I don't want to be a growth PM. I don't want to look at charts and graphs all day and, you know, trying to figure out these, like, points of optimization. Now, I mean, for me, that's just not, while I'm decent at it and I'm good at it, it's just not what brought me joy uh, at the end of the day. So I ended up, in uh, the other part, too, was Visco was around the time that my lockup expired for my stock options when we IPO'd at Zendesk. So I'm like, you know, I'm doing a job that I don't really yeah you know, I'm not really passionate about but I'm good at it, all right but I'm sitting on the bucket of money man so let me go do something I really 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 want to do and so that was just kind of the what happened to visco but lots of learnings lots of lessons sometimes you have to take a job to figure out you know what you don't want to do um and I think that that's something that you know I'm always thankful for visco for in my career
1: yeah thanks for being transparent and, and sharing with the from the period it sounds like working in a consumer application it's much more about small tweaks and hacks and optimization you know rather than a bigger border vision when you're working with enterprise right yeah and i feel like you know doing pm for consumer like the volume of data is even higher and you have to yep. be even more driven in that. yeah right?
2: i mean we went from a couple million users to like 15 million in six months because of the stuff that i had done like you know, revenues were going crazy. Like, you know, it was by all measures, it was a success. But I'm just like, yo, I'm not like this. Ain't really what I like to do, you know. And that having that self awareness really, really helped propel me for the next things that I was able to go do.
1: Yeah, fabulous. So you left Risco around the summer 2015, and for the next two years, you go circle back into some of your own entrepreneurial slash startup journey. First of all, you had the PM function for a small startup called slide.io, which builds software for brand ambassador. Yep. And you spend more than one year co-founding a startup called superhero which builds software for children's playtime. This yep. is what I learned from reading the profile. So what are some of the unique challenges of building software for these demographics?
2: Oh man, a ton slice. Think about it as like Dropbox for creators and, and brands. All right. And Dropbox with like some workflow stuff on top of it. And you know, inside of a brand, there's multiple personas and customer profiles that you need to target. And it was always just kind of a moving target, right? I think that was really the biggest challenge that that we had was that not everybody's experience in the value chain, right? So let's say I'm a Budweiser. I want to get a influencer to, to post on my thing, right? well, the influencer might have an agent, they might have a manager, they might have, you know, homies as handlers and all that type of stuff, right? Like all of those people have different levels of technical sophistication. And so for us to build a product that would address that, it was kind of tough to be honest, right? And so the thing that I learned there was basically like figure out who your customers are, differentiate who your customers and your users are and figure out how to do the thing that gets people to buy it. But like understand who the person was going to be using it day to day and try to build for that experience. And so that was something I learned there. Super heroic. It was one of those things where we had a physical product, which was a shoe for kids for playtime. Like we built a playtime shoe. Then we had an app that went along with it. And so funny enough, one of the interesting things was the app actually wasn't that bad, but there's a funny story around this. So we needed to basically figure out a way to size kids feet without actually like shipping them a branding device, a big metal clunky thing or whatever. So I built this app called KidFit, which you just take a picture of a shoe and I mean a foot in various positions and then it would send that out to our AI platform and then we would get a recommendation for the size of that foot. We were like 90 something percent accurate, which is pretty good, right? Without having like a token or whatever. But let me tell you how I got that training set and why you should never post anything about feet on Craigslist. All right. So, <laughs> so for us, we put out a Craigslist ad that was like, hey, we need to get you know pictures of feet, <laughs> all different shapes, sizes, colors, so that way we can train. And we would pay people to go do that. Man, when I tell you we got pictures from what that had like mashed potatoes in them and ketchup and all types of condiments. And I mean, it was wild. So I would recommend if you need training data, please do not advertise on Craigslist because it is not very high quality. Um, (laughs) So, but we ended up figuring it out how to get good pictures of people's feet. Yeah, the thing got to be around 90 something percent accurate. So, you know, the challenges there were learning how to blend digital and physical experiences with the shoe as well as the app. And that was something that, you know, I just learned that was a big lesson, but I mean, that was 2015 and we were doing automated ML pipelines for recommendations. We were pretty successful doing that. Right. And it was like, you know, again, it was kind of unheard of at the time for a small startup to be able to do the things that Netflix and all that. But again, that's why I tell people, Just do as much as you can. In college, I worked on this project for uh, genetic algorithms with Professor Dave Goldberg, who basically coined the term genetic algorithm. So I was doing uh, recommender systems since, you know, building in C++ back in 2002, 2003, right? And then by the time we started doing it in 2015, there's like platforms that I can leverage and stuff. So it just made it so much easier for me to go do that work. And that's really what kind of cool stuff
1: yeah for sure yeah thanks for sharing all those anecdotes and, and stories you know interesting story back in the day somehow so you navigate this different startup journey i'm actually curious it seems that you deliberately around this period the mid-2010 issue started deliberately take a break from focusing on being products for developers and try to bring, working on companies or startup that focus more on consumers in general was that like a deliberate decision that you choose to be outside your comfort zone or you know, why did you decide to transition your career to your
2: focus? I will be honest, I had FOMO, right? And so I had all these great ideas when I first moved out to the Bay and ended up working for some companies, right? And I just didn't, I always felt that I could go build something and do something, right? So a lot of it was just ego and FOMO. You know, I missed out on a few different early startups, right? (laughs) I tell the stories of, I had a classmate of mine who was like, one of the early employees at Facebook, and he asked me to come to a company called The Facebook in 2004 or 5, and I skipped that to go work at Intel. (laughs) Then he was like, yo, you know, I had another classmate. who was starting this company called YouTube in 2007, right? And I was like, nah, I got this thing at Microsoft I'm doing. All right? So, So... for me, it was it was one of those bittersweet things where I just basically just said, like, hey, look, I want to go try and do my thing. And, you know, if, if I do something and I fail fast, at least I know, you know, what those opportunities could have been or, you know, where they were supposed to be at. So, yeah, so I tried to do more startups because I just felt like I could go do my thing and go build these things. And so with the success that I had at, marmalade and then click push i was like you know they were moderately successful exits but then i was just like you know what i want to go try this again and with slice and super heroic the founders were my friends with marmalade and click push i didn't know those guys i didn't know the team and so i felt like you know hey we can go be more successful because this is a friendship relationship and so we can, you know, enjoy the success together versus me being just like the higher tech nun, you know, and that was really why I ended up doing the startup thing.
1: Yeah. That's actually a pretty interesting point. We'll talk about like, you know, Meroxa later on a the conversation, but since you just briefly mentioned like, how do you miss out on those opportunities at some of the companies like Facebook and YouTube, especially for early career technologists, how do you suggest them evaluate startup opportunities?
2: Yeah. I mean, when I advise people on when to, should I, you know, when you're coming out of college, should you go to a startup or should you go to a big company or should you start your own? Unless you've had entrepreneurial exposure to things before, I honestly suggest people go work at a big company first, right? The reason why is not because of innovation and things like that. It's that you've never been exposed to how the process as to how a big company became big. Like, it boggles my mind that people think, you know, some of these unicorn startups should be kind of revered. But when I was at Microsoft, we had 10 business units that were over a billion dollars in revenue. 10, over, you know, like, like, yeah, you know, SharePoint was a billion-dollar organization. You know what I'm saying? Like, Office apps, multi-billion, right? Like, all these things. And for me, you know, I had P&Ls that I had. Like, I was in charge of recruiting and hiring. And all these things that helped me be a great founder, I learned because I I had the room to try and fail at Microsoft, you know? You know, you talk to people about, we just hired a, a VP of sales. And he came in and he was like, honestly, this is, I've worked at big companies and small companies. This is the best recruiting and onboarding process I've ever been at. I would love to take credit for that, but it's honestly what I learned at Microsoft. Like, the process that they had there was, now, it wasn't perfect, and I can look back at it and say, okay, I would improve this, I would improve this, I would improve this. But it gave me the great foundation to understand how a well-run company should be and and i think like when you're young and you first come out and you're looking at working at a startup or doing a startup you don't have the context to understand like the product is one thing but like customer service recruiting hiring retaining growing people you know all this stuff i learned those things are honestly are more, you know, the foundation that helps the product go be more successful. And I wouldn't have learned that if I had just worked at a startup because a lot of times these po- folks don't even think about those things. They don't even care about those things, right? And so for me, it's always like, yo, one, go get the experience at a big company, understand, you know, how things are done at scale. Then you go work at a smaller startup because now you see okay, well, this is how I need to build myself technically, right? Like when you're at a big startup, you don't really get an opportunity to do things end to end, right? You're working on a big, it was like your own little slice of the world, all right? But when you're a startup, you, you have to build those skills to, you know, do everything end to end, right? But you can always keep an eye out for, hey, what does this thing look like at scale? Scale is a hammer that you cannot teach people, Right. I think that's the thing that people, you know, they don't understand how to navigate those waters. You can't read it in a book or any of that. You just have to go experience it. And so that's why I think learning from a big company first is extremely important.
1: Yeah, make makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, you can learn processes and how things are being done at a scale, for sure. Yep. Yeah, thanks for sharing those contexts and your reasoning throughout that this whole process, as well as advice for newcomers running into the field. So kind of segmenting back into your career, a major milestone in your career is your two pivotal years working as the Director of Product Management at Yeah. For context, for listeners who are not super familiar with Heroku, the company pioneer platform as a service yep. by enabling developers to build and run applications entirely in the cloud without the need to purchase or maintain any service or software. Reflecting on your time there, what were some of the product-related challenges you encounter while building tools for developers?
2: Ha oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so building for developers has always been difficult because you have to navigate their ego. Every developer with time and ability feels like they can build anything. But the thing is, the the lesson I learned here was it's not about building the thing. It's maintaining and operating the thing, right? And that's, I used to say, every developer wants a platform as a service, but they have to be the one to build it, all right. And, like, that's why I think Kubernetes is so popular, because it makes them feel like, you know, they have control over what they're using and building. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't really compete with, you know, Git push Heroku master, Alright? Like, if you go into every Kubernetes Stack Overflow post, and I'm not being hyperbolic, I'm not exaggerating. Everybody says, yo, I wish there was a Heroku for Kate's." Everybody. Like, up and down. And really, the thing that we prided ourselves on was being intentional about developer experience. And, you know, that's why we did things like pipelines and, you know, review apps. It's actually kind of funny to see a lot of the things that my team, because I was the lead PM for developer experience, a lot of the things that we had done as part of our end-to-end experience are now being taken out. You know, whole companies are getting built around the things that we did, you know. So there's, like, review app companies that are out now. There's, you know, just orchestration and like all these things, right? Chat ops companies, all right. Like, all these things that we had did are now commonplace within the developer stack as singular tools, right? Which is crazy to me. But, yeah, man, really the biggest thing that the challenges that we had was getting over your developer ego. Like, everybody says oh man, I use Heroku, but Heroku doesn't scale price-wise. But it's like, okay, cool. Let's go build our own developer infrastructure, hire a bunch of people to maintain and operate it. And then you're kind of like at the same spot that you were price-wise, right? It's just like, now I own the thing. And it's like, well, are you a platform as a service company or are you a fintech company? Like, do you want to focus on providing the best fintech experience? Or do you really want to like, build a, take six months to a year to build your own internal developer platform. Like it just didn't make sense to me. So that was kind of the challenges that that I continuously fought there with developers.
0: Yeah. So that's a really
1: excellent point. Building the platform is not a hard part. It's it's really about maintaining or operating it. And if you build a platform for technical people like engineers, then you must give them flexibility to exercise their creativity, their ethical skill set, and then allows them to contribute to that. As well. I think at this point, you know, you definitely learn a lot about working with technical audience and developers and throughout your career, you've been mostly a product manager, right? Before talking about your current journey, I want to quickly discuss your one year as the first platforming engineering PM hired Twitter. Yeah. Can you spend more than a year there? Could you mind kind of going over your experience Twitter?
2: yeah i mean my whole thing at twitter was basically i told them that you know i was a user of twitter twitter's experience like this app had declined in experience for me because they just weren't shipping features and so when i was interviewing there you know they were talking about like it took six months for an engineer to get productive because they just have all of these like silo things from acquisitions and you know they built a lot of technology because at the time you know there wasn't like Twitter, we did 12 billion events a minute. 12 billion. All right. I can't go to Datadog for observability. You know what I'm saying? That would just crash them. I can't go to Launch Darkly for feature flags. Right. Like, so they had to build all this stuff to handle that type of scale. Like, the only people that had more transactional throughput was Facebook. And they were at the time. 25, 26 billion events a minute or something. It was something crazy. Might have been a second for them because, you know, I got a lot of folks. But, you know, we had to build all this stuff because just nobody can handle that scale. And we were going to grow growing at 77% month over month, right, as far as just traffic. So we just had to build a lot of stuff. And, and when you build things on your own and people leave and all that, like just stuff got abandoned and all that. So basically my job was to come in and say... Hey, let's build the internal Heroku for the team. And that's what I did. So we got people down from six months to be productive to a few weeks. And that was really like my job was to turn the product into like a machine. Right. And so interestingly enough, while I was there, I got asked to go build a data platform, much like, you know, and I was like, yo, while I was at Heroku, I'd already had this idea. Me and Ali had already had the idea that, yo, we need to go build the data platform of the future. Right. Right. And then now that I get asked by Twitter, this you know Silicon Valley darling, this you know huge scale, blah blah blah, to basically go build a data platform that allow people to build data products very very fast, I was like, yo, this is a sign, and I asked to go build this company, and that's what I did.
1: Yeah, for sure, and it's great that you mentioned the traffic that Twitter receive, you know, billions data points per minute, because that means you really have to process them at a near real time basis, which is kind of the.
2: I mean, and think about this, man. You have to be real, time because that's ad serving, that's homepage, you know, timeline serving, that's recommended people that you should follow, like all these things that are data driven, we're getting hamstrung because of spaghetti platform that we had in place. So my job was to consolidate and figure out what is the optimal path to help people build these features that were, you know, data driven so that we can provide these highly relevant and contextual offerings for folks
0: perfect yeah that
1: does transition super well to your current journey at this point so since January 2020 you have been a co-founder and CEO of Meroxa a real-time data platform as a service gives data teams the data orchestration tools that they need to build real-time streaming infrastructure in minutes not months and in fact you also have written a blog post introducing Meroxa to the world and I believe you met your co-founder Ali while working at Heroku as well can you share the story behind the founding of the company
2: yeah definitely so Ali and I We're at Heroku together. He was the lead engineer on Heroku's Kafka offering. And I was over the developer experience. And we would oftentimes get placed uh, on these customer success journeys. Basically just go to a customer and have them complain for a couple of hours and eat lunch and then have them complain again to us, which was dope because, you know, without that customer feedback, we wouldn't know what people cared about. But literally every single one, we were kept hearing about, Yo, we need a better where's the Heroku for data? You know, where's the like developer focused Heroku for the data platform? It's cool that we can click a button and provision, but like using the actual things that we provision is still pretty tough, so we need help there. And so we tried to put something together and pitch it internally, but they didn't want to do that. So, and you know, we started talking to potential customers and you know, data engineers and data scientists and data analysts to figure out if this is really a problem. And we saw that, you know, most of the folks uh, in our target customer audience are spending 80 to 90% of their day just getting data into a format that could be used. And it's like, yo, if we can actually help them do that faster, they can start providing, you know, bringing their business logic and, and all that stuff and not have to worry about the actual setup of the thing. And that's really how we started off. We went to WeWork, basically drew what the architecture would be and that's honestly what we built today <laughs> is that thing and so while we were doing that that's when twitter had asked me like yo can you go build the thing and i was like conflict of interest no i can't go do that i'm gonna go build my own thing that's really what it was
1: yeah thanks for sharing the context a little bit so i was spun the company website and really want to dissect in the key capabilities that are back into the Microsoft product. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft platforms included a change data capture service, schema registry, event streaming service, API proxy and incident automation framework to be fast, reliable and scalable data pipelines in minutes. Could you mind explaining how the platform architecture is designed at a high level?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's literally what you said, man is Debezium into Kafka, Kafka connect and the schema registry. I mean, like, even Amazon has a managed product that does that. The thing that's differentiated above us is you don't have to worry about any of that infrastructure. We maintain and automate it and scale it for you, right? So our whole thing is, is that we've built this UX layer for an engineer to go in and say, "Yo, just connect to this data source, connect to this data destination. And then Moroxa handles all of the orchestration of events and data in between that. And then if, you know, the performance of that pipeline gets degraded or any of that type of stuff, then we automate the scaling and make sure that it's performing. If we see any destructive changes, we automate around that, right? Like if I change something from an int to a string, you know, we'll we'll automatically, you know, halt the pipeline, version it, and then give you the ability to, like, make some changes and then replay the events again. You know, stuff that's not super trivial to do, we just boil it down to a CLI command, right? Things that I learned from Heroku, things that I learned from some of the other places that I've worked at, right? And so our real big thing is just making sure that people are immediately productive.
1: Absolutely. I think another very important part of using Mirroxar in order to reduce the typical ETL pipeline setup timing, there must be some sort of connection between the data sources and destination in in real-time context, right? So what are some of the key technical challenges that your team have to go through, you know, to do some integration with very diverse connectors.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, you want standards in place to go do these things, but everybody's APIs are different. Everybody's, you know, accepted data formats are, are different. And so what we've done essentially is basically use uh, Kafka as a speed bump. And we use it as our intermediate layer to do the transformation. So once you connect, To a data source, we basically pull out the schema, we embed the DDL into the Kafka topic, and then that gets put into a Kafka topic, right? And and it basically is denormalized into this intermediate format in, in Kafka. So that when you do the connector on the other side as a destination, we normalize it to the format of the destination. So that's something that we do underneath the scenes that, you know, we might apply transforms behind the scenes. So if I want to go from Mongo to MySQL, right? Like we do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. We flatten it, you know, we do all this stuff and then we push it out to MySQL, right? And like a lot of products can't go from NoSQL to Relational, right? And like, we make it pretty easy because again, our whole thing is developer productivity. We want to reduce the amount of work that you need to do in order to consume and leverage that data. And that's really what we've done behind the scenes Mm -hmm. as far as like automation and all that type of stuff to allow people to be extremely productive when they make those connections. The other thing too is, is what I realized is like a lot of these products are just one source to one destination, right? And like we give people the ability to kind of build out these very, very complex data constellations that allow you to connect you know, and do transformation so that way you can have your data done in real time in the way that you need it. And so a lot of the automation and design things that we have thought about, architectural design that we have thought about, is all in service of making a developer's life a lot easier, engineer's life a lot easier.
1: Yeah, a lot of, yeah, the transformation, normalize it to the specific source system and then Automation, enabling data practitioners' productivity to test out the key thing that you build for the product. So earlier this year, your team open sourced Conduit, which is America's data integration tool written in Go and built to be flexible and extendable, thereby providing developer friendly streaming data orchestration. How do you see the adoption of Conduit fit into America's product strategy?
2: Yeah, I mean, the reason why we open source Conduit was twofold, right? One, we need to scratch our own itch. If you ask anybody that's built anything with Kafka Connect, they're not very happy. It's one of those, like, necessary evils, right? Like, you have to use Kafka Connect because it was the only game out there, but operating it was terrible, getting connectors is terrible, Confluent's the only game in town, basically for high-quality connectors. There's a couple people like Ivan and some other folks that built them, but Confluent has the breadth of connectors and the experience to go with it, right? But it's not very good. And one of the things that we realized from a platform perspective, running anything on the JVM, which Kafka and Kafka Connect runs on, you're going to have a world of hurt just trying to maintain and monitor that. So connectors are a gigabyte, you know, that, that you pull down. And sometimes, you know, as a platform, if you don't have very consistent throughput, you get a lot of provisioned resources and kind of bursty throughput. So I'm still on the hook for every instance that has that gigabyte, right? And like, you know, it just wasn't a good thing. The other thing too creating connectors was a pain in the ass Alright. like confluence not a developer focused like the developer experience is not very great they just launched the developer community this year but docs are all over the place docs are incorrect you know testing the thing connectors are terrible like i got to spin up a separate cluster that has kafka kafka connect zookeeper and all that type of stuff like it was just a lot so Basically, we scratched our own itch and built the Kafka Connect alternative, written in Golang, single binary. Connectors can be written in Go. Transformers can be written in JavaScript. Like we really take a developer first approach to that. The other reason too, is that if you look at the data replication space, data integration space, there's 1,700 other people that are just moving commercial and open source products that are moving data from one place to the next, right? Like Literally 1,700 companies that do automated copy paste. Just be honest what it is. And we were getting lost in that conversation. And so one of the things that we were just like is like, look, if people, all they want to do is just move data, then let's give them a high-quality free tool to do that. Let's start that race to the bottom. You don't need to go adopt all these other crazy platforms and all that type of stuff. Just use Conduit. Right? Your developers would be much happier because it's not something that like a, a, a big ton of resources that you have to have. And it works just the same as a lot of stuff. It runs on your local machine. you know, It's very, very lightweight. I think it's like 10 megabytes for the single binary. right? And we can run that on a local machine. If I want to test, I don't have to stand up, test a connector or connections between things. I don't have to go stand up all this heavy infrastructure. I can just do it on my local machine. Um, and so really... It was a strategic thing for us because we're saying, look, data integration is just one part of the thing that you want to do, you know, your holy grail. There's so much more value that Meroxit can provide on top of that. And that's really why we started Conduit, why we released it as open source and why we'll continue to support it because it scratches our itch. And then it really cements us as one of the people who have a differentiated voice in this kind of real time data transport conversation.
1: Absolutely. And there's a, a abundant amount of articles on Merck's blog uh, on development of conduit. And it seems like, you know, the re- new release is being introduced in a frequent basis. And I'll be sure to include some of those articles as well as the public roadmap and even the discourse community into the show notes. So it's can have a chance to take a look and learn more about this project. Yeah. So, Joe, customers use Meroxa for a variety of use cases, ranging from real-time data warehousing for analytics and dashboard visualization to archival of prior records into a data lake for motor training to programmatically listening and receiving data from a pipeline for custom service. Can you provide some examples of some of these use cases?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. So we've had people build real-time analytics dashboards that are compliant with privacy laws, right? And so if you think about... You know, you connect to a bunch of sources, you have a transform in between that's like the GDPR transform, the CCPA transform. There's over 70 privacy laws uh, around the world. And then basically once it hits that transform, then we put it into a snowflake table, right? Or a Redshift table or Postgres table that's already clean stream of data. So now I can basically just point my analytics visualization tool to that table. And I know that is already going to be compliant when I'm doing my analysis, right? So we've had people doing that. We've had people migrate petabytes of data from kind of legacy platforms, on-premise data warehouses, to cloud native uh, solutions. Like that's just, you know, Maroxa add Maroxa connect, right? We've had people do updating their fraud detection models in real time to more accurately prevent unauthorized transactions. So that's, Yo, know, we have this corpus of data that, you know, might be in databases or CSVs. Basically, we're using Maroxa to pull all of that and put it into a feature store. And then we can enable automated ML Ops. We've had people use us to, to do real-time search indexing with like Shopify and like all that type of stuff, right? And so, in Algolia. So basically I would take, you know, my inventory and transactional database and then use those completed transactions to update a search index on Elastic and Algolia in real time. We've had people do dynamic pricing based off of demand and supply for a online grocer, right? Like an app grocer, right? Like, you know, if I want to go get uh, the availability of produce, not only, you know, should reflect in the pricing, I mean, they do that in real time. And then also for drivers, when they see demand is getting high for orders, they basically use Moroxa to incentivize drivers for surge pricing or to kick off marketing automation flows. So that way they can attract and hire more drivers, right? For the long term. So those are kind of the use cases that we see people using us, right? But it's like, this is the type of stuff that real-time data can unlock. I was talking to a mayor's office of a very, very large city and he basically gets a report and that's 12 to 24 hours in arrears of, you know, this is how my city is doing. And it's like, no, you can actually hook Maroxa into all of these different data points And then we can basically provide this like dashboard for you. I mean, it's a real-time analytics dashboard, but Baroxa has the ability to do that with ease because now we can connect to IoT devices. We can connect to, you know, your ERP systems for supply chain stuff. We can connect to all these different things and give you a unified view as to the health of your city, right? And so those are the types of things that our customers and people have been able to do with the platform. And honestly, none of those things took more than a month to implement.
1: Definitely, I think like, you know, recently in the data space, convention or real-time has been happening a lot and definitely excited to see Microsoft pioneering that journey for more enterprise to adopt the application of real-time data and the map products and help them get more business value and make better impact for the future. So definitely excited to see upcoming customer use cases and stories of how you know Microsoft help. Let's take up your product hat and put on your father hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any holistic startup father. And in fact, when I was doing research on Microsoft's website, you know, your team put on very clearly some of the culture numbers and even values on how the company operates, such as like building with diversity, inclusivity principles in my which is central to company DNA, like three core values on customer first, stronger together and grow matter. What are some of the valuable lessons that you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Microsoft's mission? and fit with Microsoft's cultural values.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have to make that stuff public because, you know, any engineer or any person honestly worth their salt is going to have a million job offers, right? When they say like, hey, I'm, you know, just left my job, open to work, you know, on LinkedIn kind of thing. And we can't just outpay everybody, right? Like, you know, we ain't got that kind of money. Even though we raise a decent amount of money, we can't compete with Netflix and Facebook and Roblox and Airbnb, just by outbidding folks. So we have to, again, foundationally, what are the things that people care about? And it's, am I going to be in a psychologically safe environment that allows me to execute and build relationships with customers and the people around me? Am I going to get challenging work that's going to push me to learn new things? Right, And those are the things that Everybody wants to have, am I going to get agency and ownership of what the outcomes of my success are going to be, right? Like, that's what people want to have. And so for us to be very intentional and transparent about that, I think, you know, for me, it helps attract a diverse, like everybody who comes to us, principal, senior, you know, staff on the engineering side, like uh, even product, like all the positions, we get so many people saying, I want to come work at Maroxa because if I go to a big tech company, I'm going to die by a death by a thousand cuts every single day. Maybe I can only die by a death by 50 every day at Maroxa, right? And like, because we have that very, very transparent view about what makes us tick, we get the types of people that care about these things. And they're very, 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 very high quality.
1: Yeah. They're really about being intentional, being transparent about these values and what kind yeah. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What are some of the challenges that your team have to overcome initially to find some of the early design partners in Lighthouse customers?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, again, this is all about, for us, it's a crowded space. You know, I mentioned the 1,700 other different people, but the thing that I always tell people is when you start a startup, if you're just thinking about customers and employees you know, whenever you get your seed check or whatever, you're already starting off at a deficit. I've been basically starting Maroxas for the 25 years I've been in the tech industry, right? Because through my work ethic, through my reputation, through all this stuff, I built a network of people that I can just go and say, yo, can you do me a solid and try this? I call it the homie network, right? Uh, All my friends and, you know, colleagues and all this stuff are technical business decision makers at these companies. So, Yo, me getting the early design partner from just like, yo, man, remember when I took up for you back in the day this? Yo, I just need you to do me a solid. Give me 30 minutes of demo and, you know, pitch you, you know, this person. All right. That's how we brute force the initial thing, the initial people. Other thing too is your investors, the quality of your investors can help as well. Everybody says like, you know, try to find value. You know, we were value add investors, but as startup founders, we got to put these folks to task. So as they're courting you, Always ask for one or two customer introductions, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, that's what you want, and put them to work for you. I mean, I think that that's really what helped us get a lot of these early design partners and get early validation that our platform could solve problems in the near term and at scale.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's transitioned super well to my next question. We talk about employees, we talk about customers and investors. Definitely the final area I haven't really touched on our conversation. So last year, America raised a total funding of $19.2 million from mm. Drive Capital, Amplify Partners, Root Ventures, and a host of other strategic angels, institutional investors, and Scout. What fundraising advice would you give for data founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups?
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I can say is, you know, kind of piggybacking on my last thing is the way that I can find investors is pretty structured. So, you know, friends, family, coworkers first, right? Because those are people that are not going to make a business decision as to if they should invest in you. They're going to make an emotional one, right? Yo, we've always believed in you. We think that you're great, blah, 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 blah. And they're just going to give you money because they like you, right? The second rung of people that I go talk to are what I call investor market fit. If you look at Amplify, all they've done is data and developer tool deals, right? Same thing with Root is really, you know, developer focus, hard tech focus. Same thing with Drive, right? Like the partner that I worked with at Drive, all these things were data and developer focused. And so for me, it helped because I'm not talking to them about why Maroxa should exist. The conversations we're having are, hey, how are you differentiating these things? What value can you bring? Like it's more in-depth conversations versus me going to talk to, you know, somebody at some big brand name firm that has nothing, you know, all they care about is us as an asset class versus really, really, really being in tune with. You know, the nuances of real time data. Right. So that's really how I approach going to to do funders. And the third thing I do is affinity stuff. Right. Like, you know, school alumni groups, uh, ethnic diversity, geography. Right. Like, you know, I'm a black male that went from Chicago that went to University of Illinois that's four different like there's there's an accelerator, there's a VC firm, there's somebody that deals with all four of those things, right? And like I you know, just finding those audiences, like you know, you might be able to go find the illest transportation and supply chain uh investor, right? Like those are the people that you want to go talk to. And then if any of those three rums don't work, then that's when you go talk to the people that just have a you know that are more general and have a boatload of money. But Really, for me, it was just like being very, very targeted because, you know, you'll get to a yes faster when you're not just kind of spreading yourself too thin.
1: Absolutely. And so you fundraise from investors. But when I do your research on your profile, I figured out that, you know, since 2020, you also have been getting into Android investing. You know, I figured out that you were part of the first round Android track. And so I'm curious, like, what advice could you give for a smart driven operator who wants to explore Android investing?
2: Yeah. One, learn how to balance your time because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, investments take a lot of time and energy and effort. I would say two, before you start investing, understand how you can invest. So do your balance and budgets and all that type of stuff, right? And understand like what money you do have to play with uh, every year. Three, be very, very introspective and self-aware to understand what value can you bring to an early stage or to a company, right? Like they have a ton of people that are trying to give them money at all points in time, but you really have to say like, yo, this is the value that I can provide and why I'm better or than anybody else at this thing, all right? And like, be very, very crisp about that. I, I always say, it's like, what is your investor superpower, all right? Why should you choose DeVar's? Oh, I'll call myself in a third person. Why should you choose me versus anybody else? And I'm very articulate and clear about that. And I think that's really what the success is. And then knowing what you know and what you don't like, I don't invest in consumer startups. I don't do anything. Like my niche, and when you look at my resume, everybody's like, holy shit, he's data and developer tools. Let me go talk to this guy, right? And like every single deal that I've done has been in that space. Oh, I should say most of the deals I've done have been in that space. And because I'm very hyper-focused, that means that all of the data and developer tools and platform deals that come in investors are starting to ask for me to come in those deals because of the superpower that i have right which is developer experience building developer communities you know all that type of stuff so that's really the advice i would give people is to be very self-aware understand what your superpower is know what your budget is right and then being able to communicate to a founder why they should choose you versus anybody else
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that your whole career, you'll be able to impart a lot of wisdom to how those companies can run the startup of just like how you've been doing throughout this conversation. Yeah. I've so, spoken around the world at a variety of conferences and worked with countless non-profit organizations to democratize access to technical resources and education. What do you think are some of the remaining barriers that prevent minorities from pursuing the technology career?
2: Yeah, I mean, great question. One of the things... I mean, there's a bunch, right? Like, there's a lot of institutional, societal things, but, you know, uh, lack of funding for public schools, lack of expertise, right? Like, in the, in the technical realm, but down to very, very brass tacks. You know, in a lot of these major cities, most folks don't have access to internet. It's like 30% of the people in these affected populations have access to broadband internet. So if I want to do, learn, teach somebody how to code, how am I going to do that? right? Like, I need internet, I need a machine, all right? Like, it's just b- very, very basic foundational things that we don't have in place that can enable a population to up-level and upskill themselves, All right, Like, I just think that it's a travesty that it's still in today's world where we don't have universal access to Wi-Fi and connectivity, you know? The other thing, too, and I'm not trying to be overly reductive on some of these issues, but you know, we just got to start at the basics for things. I also think, too, we don't have a lot of programs that, like, we got a lot of exposure programs, like, oh, learn how to build a website in the weekend, but there's no bridge between that and, okay, well, here's how I make a career out of this thing, right? And, like, you know, we need more programs that can take people that are intellectually curious about a thing and, like, give them the skills and opportunities to turn that into a career, right? And so, that's one of the, the other things that I think that are out there. But, you know, systemic oppression is also a thing, right? So, you know, that's why I'm founding a company that's, you know, over 60% black and brown, over 50% women, and leadership is like 80%, right? Because now I have the ability to go take a chance on that person that has a non-traditional background, right? So at Marox, we have an apprenticeship program, things like that, Right. You know, I look at all these other industries that have, you know, unions and apprenticeships and all this other stuff, but the software industry is like still lagging behind. Everybody's trying to figure out how they can pay for that senior engineer instead of actually growing them, right? So, you know, I always say everybody wants to be the Yankees, right? Where they're just paying people these multi-million dollar contracts, but not everybody wants to build a farm system like the Braves, right? This is a baseball metaphor for people, right? Like The Braves, every year, had some rock star person, position player, or pitcher that they would bring up because they've trained them, right? And, like, those are the types of things that, you know, I understand, but not a lot of folks in this industry do. And we just need to show more examples of these things being successful. So that way, the pipeline is always filled with more diverse, qualified talent.
0: Yeah,
1: like those apprenticeship system to connect some of these folks from initial exposure to actually be a career out of that. Just like. Do you recommend any of the programs so I can put that in the show notes for anyone who wanted to? to Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all these like, there's one called Kira Labs, K-U-R-A Lab out of Harlem. They do, Harlem, New York, they do apprenticeships for DevOps programs and training for DevOps. That one's top of mind because I'm working with them now and that's where we got the apprentice. Mm -hmm. Like the hard part for me is recommending some of these things because I don't agree with certain things, like especially for people... That are from underrepresented, underserved backgrounds, like quick Rant. but you know, there's all these companies that are doing the ISAs, right? Income share agreements and things, all right But for me, it's hard to recommend those because most people that are minorities, they have student debt, they live in these big cities, and you're basically telling them that, hey, I'm gonna force you to live off forty to fifty thousand dollars a year while you pay back this education. And it kinda puts people in this like indentured servitude thing. Yes, they have the skills and all of that, but you know, it's just kinda like you're putting them at a further deficit than if they were to actually just kinda go get the jobs on their own. So I'm I'm big on the free things like free code camp, like I say, care labs. Those types of things, because I feel like for minorities, it gives us a better start to our career versus being behind the eight ball and worrying about where, you know, how my check is getting divvied up every month. Like, I don't think that that's something that should be done. So, for me, I think the biggest opportunity is finding, you know, these companies building these apprenticeship programs, because, like, if I want to go be the best plumber in the world, what do I do? I go work with a plumber, right? Like, and I learn how to do If I want to be the best banker in the world, I, I get a banking apprenticeship, right? Like, those types of things, and, and for the software world, the pressure has all been put on the worker instead of the companies, right? And, like, that's the thing, and, you know, because America's filled with capitalism, and I'm sorry, going on that rant, but, like... We privatize education, and that just feels wrong to me. So for me, it's just like, and then, over, you know, I want to basically find more of these things that give people from underserved, underrepresented backgrounds a better foundation for starting their career. Yeah. Kind of where I'm at with it, man.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really like remove that psychological barriers for these potential workers so they can have a pedal to go to the career and go from there. So I want to wrap up our main conversation on a fun note. As we discussed in my introduction of you, when you are not sitting in front of a computer, you are behind a camera capturing moments in time, or behind a set of turntables, moving a sea of people through music. What have you learned from photography and DJ that benefits your careers in building products?
2: Oh man, that's a good question. I think from both of them is never about you have to be egoless, all right. Like I can think I did the most fire mix, the best you know turntable routine the best picture, but all that's subjective, right? And it's not about me. It's about the person that I'm serving. That's what I learned. The product is never about you. It's never about your solutions. Is what the people want. You got to give people what they want. Now, what they want and what you deliver can be two different things, right? Like, you know, the famous Henry Ford quote was like, if I relied on the people, they would have asked for a faster horse and not a car, Right? but you're still serving them as to what they want. And there's, you know, license and liberty to be innovative in that, but you always got to serve the people. And that's what's helped me be a better product manager from being a photographer and being a DJ. And also too, taking risks, right? And like, You know, there might be that picture that a person's used to getting their photo done in a certain way. You're like, yo, let me try this thing with you, right? Or let me, you know, it's one o'clock at a club and it's like, yo, I got this new song, right? Let me just try this to see how it does, all right? Like being able to take risk and being confident in that and using the data to help you triangulate, like that's also helped me be a better product manager.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So being egoless and willing to take risks. Fabulous. So, Devaris, virus. Is this is of our conversation, I want to move into a final closing segment. I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire.
2: Uh, Tristan Handy at DBT. Love what they've done with the product. Arjun over at Materialize. Love what they've done with the product. And then, just from a thought leadership perspective, somebody that I follow, well, actually, this is going to be like 3A, 3B. Two people that I follow in the thought leadership perspective in the data community, Ben Stansel at Mode and then Chad Sanderson over at Convoy. They just have a real dope view and clarity around what the data ecosystem should be going forward. And I like, you know, reading their posts and things like that.
1: Awesome. Um, Number two, what is one book that you recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset?
2: Oh, man. I would say Zero to One by Pete Thiel. And I know you just said one, but Ben Horowitz's book, not the last one, the one he wrote before that, just, oh man, I can't think of the name of it right now.
1: The Hard Thing About the Hard Things.
2: Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah. Those two books were really, really dope. I mean, everybody talks about Lean Startup and you know all that type of stuff. But for me, I think The Hard Thing About Hard Things just really gives you the best glimpse as to what you have to do. To be successful as an entrepreneur, right? Like, you know, you're down to one month runway, and you just figure it out. You know that kind of thing, right? And like, those are the types of things that, as an entrepreneur, you need a realistic picture as to what this thing is going to be.
0: Yeah, it's really
1: giving you the behind the scene version of what entrepreneurship looks like. Yeah. Finally, uh, imagining that you can send out a single tweet to all the early-stage startup practitioners on
2: Twitter. <laughs> Who do <you> Twitter them? <laughs> Oh man, what would, what to all the early stage, oh man, what would I say? I mean, I think I've already said it before, but you know, I would say something like your modern data stack isn't that modern, it's just slightly more convenient. Do better.
1: Yeah, this is a good punch. Brilliant. So Diverse, I really enjoyed this conversation. We went to your whole journey from getting interested in mathematics and computer science, your undergrad at EYUC, just tinkering, building computers, working on research and security and human genome, some of your valuable lessons learned, working at your internship at Intel and Cisco, your early career at Microsoft, your team doing startup at Marmalade, Quick Push, your time at Zandes, VSCO, Slide, Superheroic, and some of your and working at Heroku, and then later, uh, twitter and your current as the co-founder and ceo of meroxa building a real-time data platform you know various threat and wisdom related to product development hiring relevant people exploring different use cases of real-time streaming building an, an open source project cultivating a community of developers and data practitioners fighting early designers and now customers for enterprise fundraising and job investing democratizing access to technical resources and education and um, you know various things that i haven't mentioned But uh, I really enjoy our conversation today, and I hope that, you know, listeners can have the chance to really take away a lot from it, and because there's so many wisdom being put on it, and I definitely include everything that we discussed today here on the show notes so people can follow the virus on their social platform and anticipate some of the future work that Merckxile has been doing to not just pushing the boundaries of real-time modern data stack, but also democratizing access for more minorities and people outside of the traditional tech profile to get into this field. So the I absolutely enjoy this commission and hope you have a great rest of your week.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This is great. It's been a wonderful two hours on a Friday, man. So thank you very, very much. And looking forward to the final product.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now